Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. If you know a bit about the space program, but if you don't work in the business, when I talk about the two competing space powers, you would probably think that I'm talking about the United States and the Soviet Union and the great space race of the early 1960s that we talked a lot about uh, in our episodes about Project Mercury. And you really couldn't be blamed for thinking so if you don't work in the business. But if you work in the space business, you know that the space world really only divides into two kinds of people, and pretty much always has, and it isn't based on nationality. It's based on what you do when you get to space. You see, in space, you are pretty much either a space exploration person or a satellite person. You are either in the business of putting humans and robots in space to work there, or you're in the business of putting satellites in space to work from there. You may think that I'm being a bit hyperbolic to divide the space world so definitely into black and white, and maybe I am, but not by all that much. And anybody who works in the space business is now nodding their head vigorously at that statement. It is not really not untrue to say that almost from the moment that mankind first orbited the planet with the launch of Sputnik in 1957, there were humans who looked up and thought, look at the new frontier that has opened. We need to go there. We need to explore this new dimension. And then there was another group of humans who looked up and thought, what an amazing new frontier has opened. There is so much we can learn about our world by going there and looking back. And then we can use this unique vantage point to find new ways to solve problems here on the ground. Almost from the very beginning, the community of space pioneers divided into the group that wanted to send humans and their inventions outward to explore, and those that wanted to send human inventions, and, and humans too, to first study the Earth and its near environment, and then work from there to do things on the Earth. And to declare my tilt early on for those of you who don't know, I spent the large majority of my career in the space exploration camp. Oh, though, though I think it's fair to say that I also spent a number of interesting years trying to herd all of the cats from both communities to work together for the common good, so I know a little bit about how both sides think. Now, to date on this show, we've focused on the quest to put a human in space and to bring them back safely. But the fact of the matter is that between the launch of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin's first human spaceflight, there were more than 30 launches of orbital, or at least what were intended to be orbital, spacecraft. Now, it is also true that more than a third of those launches were failures or partial failures, but by the time Yuri Gagarin's Vostok spacecraft entered Earth's orbit, it was far from the only man-made object to have left, left the planet. Now, it is true that these unmanned launches were roughly evenly divided between missions to study the Earth, mainly atmospheric phenomena, and missions to study the Moon, which really properly belong in the space exploration category as they were mainly intended to be precursor missions for the manned lunar missions then being planned by both the United States and the Soviet Union. 
Now, admittedly, part of the reason that there were a lot more machines and instruments getting to orbits than humans was the plain fact that, among other things, they didn't have to be returned safely to the surface, which, as we have discussed, is a feat that is almost as hard or maybe even harder than getting off the planet in the first place. In fact, it is still true today that we have a much greater capacity to th take things up to space than we have to bring them back from there. As proof of this fact, you can look at the fact that many of those early satellites are actually still in orbit, although they have long since been shut down. Be that as it may, the point is that before a single human ever made it into space, our inventions were going to space at the rate of one every few months or so. But until 1962, only two countries had ever built hardware that made it into space, the United States and the USSR. Now, in 1962, the United Kingdom became the third country to own and operate a satellite with the launch of Ariel 1. However, as any red-blooded Canadian knows, this doesn't really count, because the British relied on the Americans to manufacture and launch the satellite. Huh. So, we all, or at least all of us that live north of the 49th parallel, in North America anyway, know that the third country in space was Canada which designed, developed, built, and eventually operated the Alouette 1 spacecraft. Now, we did let the Americans launch it for us on the 29th of September in 1962. Apart and aside from the fact that it is uh, the foundational piece of Canadian space lore, I would like to talk a little bit more about Alouette, because I also think it's emblematic of the early days of satellite work that really laid the foundation for the explosion in satellite technology that followed uh, in the next decade or so, which, in turn, laid the foundation for, frankly, the way our world works today. And that's because Alouette was all about communications. But not communications to and from space. Alouette was actually designed to help improve a ground-based solution to a communications problem, but along the way, the experience of flying a successful satellite caused the scientists involved, and others as well, to realize that there was another way to solve the same problem, using space itself. Okay, that was a bit of a mouthful. mouthful. Maybe we should uh, back the truck up a bit and go at this a little bit more slowly. Before we go any further, we have to add another name to our list of first Terranauts, and that is the name of John H. Chapman. John Chapman is not only Canada's first Terranaut, but he is also widely seen as the founding father of the Canadian space sector. But he also deserves a place beside the rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, and the spacecraft engineer, Gene Krantz, because John Chapman was one of the first of the species of Terranaut that we now call the space scientist. And by that term, I don't necessarily mean he was a scientist who studied space, although it does encompass people who do that. And he was a bit of that. No, in this context, I mean that he was one of the early visionaries who understood how to access, how access to space would allow us to do science in ways that were simply not possible from the ground. John Chapman's great contribution was not in the science he performed. It was in demonstrating that space was a place from which science could be performed. Unlike Werner von Braun and Gene Kranz before him, he was instrumental in creating a whole new profession. John Herbert Chapman was born in 1921 in London, Ontario. 
He studied first at the University of Western Ontario and then at McGill University in Montreal, obtaining a Ph.D. in 1950. As the space age opened in the late 1950s, Chapman was working as a scientist and a section head at the Defense Research Telecommunications Establishment, or DRTE, in Shirley's Bay, just outside of Ottawa, and in fact just a few kilometers from where I am recording this today. One of the principal questions that Chapman and his team were working on was the problem of long-range, over-the-horizon communications, especially in high northern latitudes. This was, and to some extent continues to be, well, a quintessentially Canadian problem. And that's because of some facts about Canada that aren't unique, but are close to unique. And the first is that Canada is uh, big. You know, really big. This is a fact that's pretty obvious for anyone in Canada who works with someone in the country who is four or even four and a half time zones away, which is actually not all that uncommon. But it is just that's just the east-west dimension. What most people, including most Canadians, don't realize is how big the country is from north to south as well. For instance, for me, sitting in Ottawa, it's just about 3,000 kilometers to Resolute Bay in Canada's Arctic archipelago, which is almost exactly the same distance as it is to the Pacific coast at Vancouver, and it's twice as far as it is to St. John's, Newfoundland at the far eastern end of the country. The second fact about Canada that was important to John Chapman and his group is that in Canada it is usually a very long way between people. And this is more and more true the farther north you go, which makes communication a challenge. Uh, it is notoriously a challenge even today in our hyperconnected world. In 1957, it was a much bigger challenge. Now, as far as things... As far as things have come in the 60 years since Sputnik, things had come even farther in the 60 years before that. At the turn of the 20th century, there was really no practical way of communicating with northern communities except by sea in the summer and by ice road in the winter. So in the 1950s, when DRTE was experimenting with high-frequency, or HF, methods for communicating over the horizon, it was already a massive change from just a few decades before. And remember, this was a time when real-time voice communication over long distances was still very much a novelty. But this kind of communication with the North had some serious issues. It depended on radio waves traveling between points on the Earth that were hidden from one another by the curvature of the Earth by bouncing signals off the atmosphere in between the two points. When it worked, it could be startling how well it worked. And when it didn't work, it might not work at all, and often it wasn't clear why. And the reason, of course, is because the changes in, that changes in the atmosphere could disrupt the ability of those signals to bounce off the atmosphere and disrupt the transmission path entirely. And this was particularly true in the north because of the interactions that happen in the north and above the north between the Earth's atmosphere and the sleet of charged particles through which the Earth moves in space. These charged particles interact with and are channeled by the Earth's magnetic field. It's one of the reasons life on Earth even exists, because our magnetic field effectively shields us from these charged particles. Okay, without going into too much detail, what you need to know is that because the lines of the Earth's magnetic field converge at the poles, the density of charged particles does as well. 
the convergence of the field also tends to accelerate those same charged particles. And if you know anything about the physics of electromagnetism, you know that when charged particles accelerate, a lot of electromagnetism starts to happen. Suffice it to say that the equations start to get long and the vector operators start to proliferate with frightening rapidity, all of which is to say that communication with the high latitudes using high-frequency radio signals was A, often possible because of the unique electromagnetic properties of the atmosphere in the north, and B, often utterly impossible because of those same properties. Which is all just a very long way of saying that for John Chapman and his group at DRTE, gaining a greater understanding of the nature of the atmosphere and how it interacted with the space environment through which the Earth moved was not only a matter of intense scientific interest, it was a matter of national importance and maybe even national security since Canada's north was seen at the time as the main buffer zone between Canada and the U.S., in the Soviet Union. So being able to communicate regularly and reliably with stations in the North was important. Now, the group at DRTE were no strangers to rocketry. Uh, they had actually been conducting a series of experiments using suborbital uh, sounding rockets launched from the Churchill Rocket Range in Churchill, Manitoba. In this work, John Chapman and his team had gotten to know American researchers that were also using the Churchill range to launch their own sounding rockets. And so, when Sputnik galvanized the United States and led to the consolidation of U.S. efforts into NASA, Chapman saw the opportunity to move beyond sounding rockets and into orbit. He was further convinced that because it was a problem that was particularly important to Canada, that Canadian scientists who had been quietly accumulating the experience and capability could design the instruments and even the whole satellite that would study the problem. And so he believed that Canada should build its own satellite. Through hard work, technical insight, and from what I can tell, sheer force of will, he managed to convince not only the Canadian government, but enough people in the American one as well to go along with the scheme. Now, in those early days, NASA was eager to collaborate internationally, and although there were some significant skepticism at NASA about DRTE's ability to build a satellite that would accomplish all that Chapman wanted to do, they agreed to launch the satellite as part of a joint Canada-U.S. science program in exchange for having access to the data that it collected. And so Alouette was born. Although its entries in Wikipedia and the NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive are short, running to just a few hundred words each, they hide what was an engineering achievement that was just as groundbreaking as any of the specific technical achievements of Project Mercury. In contrast to Project Mercury, Alouette was a small, self-contained spacecraft and a small, reasonably well self-contained program. The satellite weighed less than 150 kilograms and measured a meter or so on a side. It was designed to look down from above and make measurements or soundings into the atmosphere across a broad range of radio frequencies, as well as making a variety of measurements of the charged particle environment in the near vicinity of Earth. In contrast to the manned spaceflight first flights, it was launched into a high inclination orbit, meaning that instead of racing around the Earth from west to east as the astronauts did, Alouette orbited the Earth from south to north 
and the world rotated beneath it. The satellite was spin-stabilized, meaning it spun around one of its axes, and it used that gyroscopic stability, thus conferred, to keep it pointed in a given direction. This gyroscopic stability is the same effect that keeps a bicycle upright, or for that matter keeps rifle bullets traveling in a straight line instead of tumbling. Keeping the satellite oriented would be critical to being able to communicate with it. Without the stabilization, the satellite would tend to tumble unpredictably, and so it would be impossible to point its antennas in a direction that would allow them to communicate with the ground. Later, spacecraft engineers would determine that rather than spinning the whole satellite, they could spin just momentum wheels inside the spacecraft itself and achieve the same effect, but that's a story for another day. In point of fact, actually, the ability to communicate with the ground was, at the time, one of the most important achievements of Alouette. It was important because the spacecraft did not have any means of recording or storing measurements on board, so it would, in fact, only be making measurements when it could communicate with the ground. At the time, this was a huge risk and a huge technical challenge. One of the things that is often forgotten about the early days of space is that it was also, relatively speaking, the early days of radio. Reliable wireless communications between stations a few hundred kilometers apart was still not something that could be taken for granted at the time, and for a lot of reasons there that would be a podcast in their own right, the technology of the time required both larger antennas and much more transmitting power to achieve reliable communications than today's technology does. In fact, Alouette would have two antennas. One of them would have to be 45 meters long, and the other would have to be 22 and a half meters long. The only problem is that they would have to go into a spacecraft that was less than two meters in diameter and about a meter high, and which was already packed with sensitive electronics. The solution was, and is, one of those great Canadian inventions that no one has ever heard of. Thin strips of beryllium copper were bent into a shallow U-shape and then rolled into something that for all the world resembled a large tape measure. When triggered, the antennas would unroll and snap into place, resulting in an antenna that was stiff and had a roughly circular cross-section. Now, this is a family-oriented podcast, so I'm not going to dwell on the description anymore, except to note that the whole concept was dubbed STEM, or Storable, Tubular, Extendable, Member, which I think is an acronym that was invented by someone with a very naughty, although subtle, sense of humor. Now, this system was so successful that it was, in fact, copied by many of the early satellites in the era. So, remember, when someone asks you about what Canadians have given to the world, tell them we gave the world our storable, tubular, extendable members, and we'd do it again if we had the chance. Alouette went on to be a massive validation of John Chapman's vision. The technical and scientific achievements are, actually, in some ways, the stuff of legend. In an era where satellite lifetimes were measured in days, or maybe at most months, Alouette 1 continued to operate for more than 10 years, and then it was eventually turned off. In fact, in 1993, Alouette was recognized by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers with a prestigious Milestone and Engineering Award in honor of its significant achievement in the history of electrical and electronic engineering. 
It was also important, though, because it showed that space could be accessed through the dedicated efforts of a small, talented, and committed team. That even though the space environment was brand new and a huge challenge, it didn't need the resources of an entire government or that of a superpower in order to be able to use access to space to do real and constructive work for the benefit of life on Earth. And it didn't require putting a human being in space to leave the planet. Now, there were other groups in the early days of space that launched satellites that were designed to understand the Earth's atmosphere, often with the intent of improving communications through the atmosphere. But then kind of a funny thing happened on the way to orbit, so to speak. The improvements in communications technology, at least partially in response to the need to communicate with satellites, and the experience of communicating with those satellites, suddenly opened the door to communicating between stations on Earth by way of a satellite outside the atmosphere itself. In effect, scientists and engineers began to realize that they could not only use satellites to study how to communicate, they could, possibly, use them to perform the communications themselves. This actually started as early as 1958 with the U.S. Army uh, SCORE program, which used a satellite to relay messages from one station to another. Now, this was not true two-way communications. It featured the ability to store a message from one station and then repeat it to another station later in the orbit. But it was, in fact, used to transmit a Christmas message from Prince President Eisenhower. Um, the flight only lasted 12 days, though, until its battery died. This was followed by Courier 1B in late 1960, which, again, was a store-and-forward satellite used to transmit teletype messages between widely separated ground stations without the need for wired communications. Now, given what we know about the Project Mercury global network that was being built at that time, this was of massive interest to NASA. But the first true communication satellite that we would recognize as such was Telestar 1, which launched in July of 1962. It was actually capable of relaying telephone calls and television signals live but in order to do this, it required that the two stations that wanted to communicate could both see it at the same time. In order to make this possible, the satellite was one of the first to make use of something called a millennia orbit. A millennia orbit is one that is highly elliptical. Effectively, it passes close to the Earth in one part of its orbit, and in this part of the orbit, it moves very quickly over the ground. In the other end of its orbit, it flies far away from the Earth and spends much longer in that part of its orbit. So, effectively, the satellite spends much more time over one of the Earth's hemispheres, and because it's flying higher, it can be seen more by more widely spaced stations on the ground during this time. In Telestar's case, it was designed for communications between Europe and North America, and it actually pioneered not only transatlantic telephone calls via satellite, but it also featured the first transatlantic television broadcast. But it was only capable of transmitting transatlantic traffic for about 30 minutes out of each two-and-a-half-hour orbit, and communicating with the satellite required a truly massive purpose-built antenna. Uh, the antennas were 54 meters long and weighed almost 400 tons. So, while the satellite link could be used to move signals across the ocean, it really hadn't reached the stage where it was providing true point-to-point -point communication because the signal had to travel by the ground to the transmitting station where it was sent through space to the receiving station, which then distributed uh, the signal on the other side of the ocean. 
But even at that level of sophistication, it was still seen as a massive advance on the technology of the day. And those of the listeners who were not alive in the 1960s and 70s may not remember when live via satellite was a descriptor that was added to television broadcasts like the Olympics to indicate that they were at the cutting edge of technology. Now, the next advance in satellite communications technology came in 1963, and it was a breakthrough that really settled the value of space as a link between points on Earth, and that was because it provided constant, continuous, and reliable communication. Now, this was SINCOM 2, uh, SINCOM 2 because actually SINCOM 1 failed on the way to orbit. Uh, SINCOM 2 was launched in 1963, and it was the first communication satellite to occupy a geostationary orbit. Well, what's a geostationary orbit, and why does that matter? Well, the concept and fact of a geostationary orbit is one of those things that, um, to those that are familiar with it, um, they take it for granted, but it's actually a little bizarre for the rest of us. Simply put, a geostationary satellite is a satellite that stays in exactly the same place over the surface of the Earth all the time. In a sense, a sense, the geostationary orbit is just a physical manifestation of the mathematical fact that the orbital speed of an object is purely a function of its orbital radius, but of course the length of its orbit is also just a function of its radius. So it doesn't take long looking at those two equations to realize that you can write down an equation for an orbital radius that will result in an orbital speed that will give you an orbital period of 24 hours. Now, that radius is about 42,000 kilometers, which once you take out the radius of the Earth, is an orbital altitude of around 36,000 kilometers, or a bit more than 22,000 miles. Now, how you get to such an orbit from a standing start on the ground is a much less straightforward problem and requires a discussion of things like angular momentum, orbital mechanics, and transfer orbits which we aren't going to go into today, because as you can see, when we start talking about orbits and orbital mechanics, the discussion rapidly enters the twilight zone that, again, makes sense to people who are used to talking about, but is a bit of jitter gibberish to those who aren't. But it is also a world that, to me, at least is a world of great wonder. There are some things in space that should be easy, like flying in a straight line, that are very difficult because of orbital mechanics. But there are some things that seem like they should be very difficult or nearly impossible, which are actually quite easy, including things like going to and getting back from the moon and other planets. But that's definitely a story for another day, because we're talking about satellites around Earth today. The point for today is that SINCOM proved that a satellite could be placed at a geostationary orbit, and then when it was, it would provide a constantly available capability to relay communication signals between fairly widely separated stations on the ground. You see, because of the height of a geostationary orbit, a satellite in that orbit can see and be seen by ground stations that are separated by as much as about 150 degrees of latitude or longitude. That is easily enough to connect Europe with North America, or for that matter, northern Canada with southern Argentina, for instance. This, in the end, as they say, actually changed everything. It meant 
that with a relatively small number of satellites, say three, it was possible to envision the possibility of being able to communicate between literally any two points on the planet, any time, all the time. To me, there is a clear and bright line between that moment and all of the technology that enables our hyper-connected world today, not because the SINCOM satellite pioneered all of the technology that underlies the Internet and our other communications technologies, but because it demonstrated how valuable those permanent and reliable connections would be. With every passing year since the advent of SINCOM, more and more effort, time, and money would be spent on improving, increasing the number and quality of those connections. That first geostationary satellite opened a door into the future in ways which I think are probably even more profound than all of the human orbital space missions combined. Because the ability to be and stay connected underlies our economies today and our societies and our lives in ways that we don't even appreciate most days until the power goes off or the interconnection, internet connection goes down or our cell phone provider has a massive outage. And for me, the moment we truly started envisioning of that future was when we put the first geostationary satellite in orbit and began to realize what was possible. But that is a story that we will have to continue next time, because we're out of time for this episode of A Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. Tune into the next episode when we'll talk more about the advances in communication satellites. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.